Yeah, I'm definitely an activist and an advocate. And I think by definition, motherhood is that because you by far are impacting the next generation. Um, You're setting them up. You're inspiring them. You're giving them tools. You're changing things. Um, so when when people will say, oh, I'm not an activist. And I'm like, well, you're raising, you're literally raising the next mm-hmm. generation in whatever way, um, you know, and you're inspiring them. And I think we can't discount the role that motherhood plays in activism and being able to expand that definition. So it doesn't mean, oh, I got to go get a sign and stand in the street and get shot with rubber bullets. Yes, that has its place, but I think there's things that that are happening under our roof that we need to to get credit for. Hi, I'm Bridget Garsh, co-founder of Neighbor Schools and your host for Work Like a Mother, a podcast dedicated to real conversations with incredible women juggling work, life, and motherhood. Today, I'm thrilled to sit down with Kiana Agbai, connector, consultant, and communicator. If someone says the word activist to you, what do you see in your mind? For me, I used to see women marching through the streets with signs held high and voices blaring. But after talking with Kiana, I've realized that activism takes many forms. Kiana believes that all mothers are inherently activists and advocates. We are raising the next generation of change makers, and we shouldn't take this role lightly. Some moms advocate in the books that we read to our children and the lessons we teach in hopes to raise our children to spread kindness, acceptance, and love. Kiana inspires, encourages, and challenges the system. She connects with an amazing community through her Harlem Lovebirds blog and social media presence. She's also a very active member of Moms Demand Action, an organization advocating for anti-gun legislation. She juggles this role as an advocate in addition to running a marketing, PR, and graphic design firm and being a mother to two children. Well, you have been sharing really your family journey and so much of your family life for a long time now. And you were really at the the forefront with Harlem Lovebirds at, you know, blogging when it was really still new. What was the inspiration to start sharing your story? So in 2007, I had left Boston after uh, working in advertising uh, five years after Wellesley, left Boston, went to New York City, knew I wanted to give the industry a try in that space. Um, My husband was still in Boston. He was playing basketball uh, abroad. And so he had taken some time off to, um, cause his mother had passed away. He decided to stay local for a little bit. And after playing basketball, Boston college, um, went abroad after being in Boston, went back abroad for a little bit. Um, but we always had a pretty much long distance relationship. So I knew that I was going to keep going in my career in 2007, moving to New York city. So when I got to New York city, um, Later that year, we ended up getting engaged and then we got married. uh, Let's see, we got married in 2009. So we're coming up on our 12th wedding anniversary soon. 
But with um, starting a family in New York City and coming from Columbus, Ohio, where I was raised, I thought it might be cool to kind of document that experience as newlyweds and then subsequently first-time parents. And I thought of the name Harlem Lovebird. I kept a written journal since I was seven. I still have those here. My kids think they're hilarious when they read the the younger versions of what I had to say. Uh, and so I I really felt like I was going from a written journal to an online journal. And so I approached my blog as a journal. And while I was in New York City and the blogging scene, especially the, the parenting blogger scene started growing, I was getting approached to do paid posts, sponsor content, brand ambassadorships and things of that nature. And I was like, wow, this is really lucrative. Mm-hmm. I knew I wasn't going to be in the advertising industry you know, anymore. And so I stepped away from that. But I thought it was a great way to have some income. Some of the positions let me take my kids along for some of the brand ambassadorships and things of that nature. And I could make my own schedule, talk about things that I wanted to talk about. So I was blogging almost like five days a week back then, which is a lot. Like I, I don't obviously yeah. do that now, um, especially with the advent of video and Instagram and all those short snippets. But it was a really great way to build a base of followers. And so I'm, I'm, I guess what you consider now a micro influencer. So um, I have under ten thousand followers. Um, probably about 10,000 combined across all my platforms, but just on Instagram under 10,000. And so I really appreciate the fact that I can make a tight knit community. Um, People who have kind of seen me evolve over the years. I feel like a lot of the people that I connect with via Harlan Lovebirds have known me and followed my parenting journey. And this notion of motherhood as activism kind of picking up for me back in 2014 when my family relocated from New York City up to Portsmouth, New Hampshire for my husband's job. I was in um, Portsmouth, New Hampshire and had an active shooter situation for the first time coming from New York City, getting involved with Moms Demand Action, the Wellesley Racial Justice Initiative and leadership positions, and started to find that in uh, the influencer space that I was getting pegged as as an activist or a mom activist. And I really started to think about it. And I was like, I don't know if I'm really an activist. I'm a mom who became uh, passionate and enlightened about certain things that were coming to my doorstep. And I think because there was so much at stake and I saw the lens of the world, you know, through this role as a mother, it made me want to take an active position. So rather than, you know, the thoughts and prayers Um, crying through news stories of yet another mass shooting or especially seeing what happened in Sandy Hook and thinking that I was going to have a kindergartner. I think it made me more aware and it made me want to be an active participant um, rather than a bystander. Can you share a little bit more about Moms Demand Action and the, the work that you're doing there? Definitely. So Moms Demand Action started because of Sandy Hook. Um, Shannon Watts, the, the founder, uh, partnered up with Every Town, Michael Bloomberg's organization, which is a counter to the NRA. And so I had known about it for years. But once I got to New Hampshire and then subsequently moving to Boston in 2016, I saw that a chapter was starting for the first time in Boston. And so I immediately signed up as the community outreach lead. And because I was returning to Boston after having been in Boston for Wellesley uh, when I came in 98 and then left in 2007, I thought because of that nine-year gap, 
it would be a great way to get involved in the community and kind of learn my way around and meet people because it was a very forward facing position. Hmm. And I felt very comfortable being forward facing. So I had done like Toastmasters for years. I had done those brand ambassadorships I told you about through my blog. I'd done a lot of um, theater work and things of that nature. Very comfortable public speaking, meeting new people uh, and taking the kids along. And so my kids would come with me to meetings and events. We'd go to other organizations, um, events in Boston to support. And I think it was really important that Moms Demand Action uh, set up their volunteers with a lot of tools. So they have a really well-organized toolkit. They allow you to get involved based on what you can commit or what your expertise or interest is. So I think if you're someone who's coming in who might be intimidated about writing letters, you don't have to write letters. You can phone bank and they have portals and systems to make it very turnkey. If you're comfortable comfortable meeting legislators, you can do like what I did and show up at lobby day and meet your local representatives. And they give you scripts and training to be able to do that. If you want to write a letter to the editor, you can do that. And I've done that and, and I've had it published. Um, so I think there's a lot of ways that they accommodate moms and their desire to show up in whichever way they can. So I think there's a lot of barriers in general for volunteering as a mom or activism, if you want to call it that. But I think it's important to do something. And the notion is you have all these other mothers and and uh, mothers and others, <laughs> we like to say, who will show up for the cause. And so you know that you're one piece of something that's very grand and that rather than passively seeing these things happen, you're doing things to get laws in order, like red flag laws, extremist protective orders, like what we had here in Massachusetts. So all of those things are are what we've done uh, through Moms Demand Action. And it's just beautiful that it's a whole network of, of moms across the nation working towards this common goal. So would you say that now you do see yourself as an activist and an advocate? Has that perception changed over the years? Yeah, I'm definitely an activist and an advocate. And I think by definition, motherhood is that because you by far are impacting the next generation. Um, You're setting them up, you're inspiring them, you're giving them tools, you're changing things. Um, so when, when people will say, oh, I'm not an activist and I'm like, well, you're raising, you're literally raising the next generation in whatever way, um, you know, and you're inspiring them. And I think we can't discount the role that motherhood plays in activism and being able to expand that definition. So it doesn't mean, oh, I got to go get a sign and stand in the street and get shot with rubber bullets. Yes, that has its place. But I think there's things that that are happening under our roof that we need to to get credit for. Well, and so much of it, too, um, is really speaking out and sharing your personal experience and sharing your voice. And I think that comes through on the advocacy side. You've done a lot of that over the last year and being really open and transparent about what the last year has been like for you. I mean what a year it's been such a, a blur. Can you share a little bit about what this last year has been like for you and that evolution? Yeah, I'm a planner by nature. Um, 
And so I'm the, the person who's always looking like a year out, many years out thinking ahead. So this year was a real challenge for me. I, I'm, you know, I think most people have a challenging time with uncertainty, but this was just uncertainty to the 10th power. And so I struggled a lot with that. Also, I have autoimmune disease. So dealing with lupus, also dealing with um, hypothyroidism. So I have these health issues um, coming up and managing that and stress and man, you know, seeing how stress manifests itself regardless of COVID for me is, um, a challenge. So I had to really take a step back and think about what are things I'm going to do to take care of myself, still focusing on fitness. Once we got through, you know, March and the spring and being, um, able to do walks and things outside. But once we turn inward, um, being able to make sure I'm moving my body on a regular basis. Um, at the end of the year, I did work with um, a business coach who was really 360 in helping me focus on all of those things as I'm I'm still trying to work from home and run my consulting company with the kids' schedules and dropping the ball a lot. So giving myself grace when I'm forgetting, oh, school pickup, but what time is it today? Oh, and my son has to do this and Mm-hmm. Did everything get logged in? And did we sign up for the COVID test? Like, so juggling all that and the mental load was a lot. Um, but also I did things like make, make sure I uh, had an uptick in my therapy. So making sure every other week I was meeting with my therapist virtually. Uh, so that's been really helpful. And just talking a lot, even with my husband, I mean, we've known each other since we were 18, um, we're 40 now. So I think there's a long history for the both of us of seeing each other through ups and downs. Mm -hmm. So we kind of have that library uh, for each other. And so I rely on him a lot and he's really supportive of me. So I think having all of those things together made the year more manageable, definitely not ideal as we know, but I've been really grateful for our health um, and safety during this time. Um, but I, I am ready for <laughs> it to be over like we all are. Uh, I so I think having that light at the end of the tunnel, um, I'm really excited for that. It also makes me think about older generations who went through much longer periods of either war or disease and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And just being in awe of what previous generations have gone through, uh, being grateful for science. <laughs> And that this has really been a year, a year plus, but also knowing that there's people around the world who are still going through this. And so that weighs heavily on me. When you think back to what we talked about me as an activist, I think there's a level of of worldview Mm. where I feel like, okay, my family's relatively okay. We came out of this pretty unscathed, but just because I'm okay doesn't mean I put blinders on to anything else that's happening? What are ways that I can amplify and bring attention to other COVID challenges and other inequities? So I try to make sure I instill that in the kids that, okay, we're okay. Who can we help next? So always having that community, that world community view um, is a guiding principle for me. As you're talking, it really strikes me how connected so many areas of your life are, right? It seems like your work is infusing your family life. Your family life is infusing your work. They're very nested together. How do you see that 
that connection and that, that back and forth, um, like helping you be stronger. Yeah, I think it may, it definitely makes me more efficient. (laughs) So when I talked about being a planner with the different hats I wear, I also during this time went through a website rebranding and that clarity came out of like a light bulb moment when I was just like, I need one place for people to go. Yes, I have Harlem Lovebirds. I don't write it on it as often or Instagram or whatever. I just need one place for people to go that kind of synthesizes all that I do. And so I thought of, um, you know, the roles that I play, uh, not really having an affinity for the word influencer or blogger. I think it's more than that. And so I came up with the connector um, the consultant because of the work I do, uh, with trifecta media group and then communicator because of the public speaking piece. And so those three silos really helped me get clarity. And so when I filter things through, whether it's, uh, a public speaking opportunity that I'm getting or clients who want to work with me, small business clients that want to work with me, uh, or even brands, you know, that I work with, I think it just filters through, you know, how do I want to show up in the world? And so Kiana.com really helped that process really helped me crystallize that Hmm. and to work more efficiently because I'm always switching on and off hats. Um, I miss being in person. A lot of what I do hinged on meeting people and getting out the door and the face-to-face but this past year was the most, I guess, exposure that I've had. I think Blackout Tuesday had a lot to do with that, where I felt these topics that I had been talking about for years, finally, it was like, oh, we're here too. The brands wanted to play along. Um, Other influencers, Black, White, and otherwise wanted to jump in on the conversation. So it felt like a very lonely place for many years Hmm. um, in this influencer world. Uh, and I was really excited to see other companies start to lead that discussion. And it was almost like a welcome to the party moment. Like, Hey, I've been here, here, come along. (laughs) Let's talk about these things now. So that was a good feeling. How you, you just touched on your consulting work. Can you share a little bit more about that hat that you wear out of the many that you are jumping back and forth between? Oh, for sure. So uh, when I left Wellesley, I knew I wanted to work in the advertising industry. And so I'd done media planning, uh, account management, working in the marketing department, you know, client side as well. And so after those eight years and then being in New York City and wanting to start a family, I started to see the schedule wasn't conducive to the type of family life I wanted to have. And so when my husband's job took us up to New Hampshire and I was a second time mom, my son had just been born. uh, I started to think about what, what was a way that I could keep my foot in the door. And so my sisters and I, uh, we would send freelance work to each other. Even when I was doing some influencer things, um, doing consulting from time to time. And so um, one of my sisters is a graphic designer and one is a publicist. And so with my, Um, experience in media planning and marketing, I said, you know what, there's other small businesses that need these services. They can't hire these big agencies that we've all worked at. They can't afford like five, six figure retainer Mm -hmm. fees. Are there ways that we can scale our expertise down for small businesses who might have shorter term limited budget needs and be able to package that for them. And so we formed Trifecta Media Group in 2014. And it's really been a word of mouth enterprise And so it's been really great to be able to do that with my sisters and also 
work in a very empathetic way with other small business owners. I feel like we've touched on some of the hats that you wear. We've touched on to use your language. So we've touched on the consultant. We've touched on the the connector a little bit, but we haven't actually talked about something that is so clear from our conversation today, how you are a very gifted public speaker. Is that something you've always had in throughout your life? Is that something that you really, you know, sort of invested in and really built out that skill? Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Definitely. Um, Growing up in Columbus, Ohio, my mom got me involved in speech meets. I don't know if they have those anywhere else, but we would recite poems like oratory, uh, have to recite them. Some of them were dramatic, but I would do them for competitions in elementary school. Mm-hmm. I don't know how she convinced me to get into it, but I really took to it. And then also just doing school plays and things like that. My high school had a require a public speaking requirement that I really enjoyed. And then uh, once I got to Wellesley, I participated in uh, not any of the college plays, but more so spoken word type things from time to time. So I always felt really comfortable since I was a child. I've tried to foster that in my own children too, encouraging my daughter to be involved in theater. Um, So I think one of those things was planting the seed uh, that my parents really uh, inspired me and encouraged me. Uh, not to have stage fright. And I really took to it. And then I got into Toastmasters, which I highly recommend a public speaking organization that's been around for over 100 years. When my husband and I lived in New York City, uh, it was just an activity for us to do as newlyweds. And we thought, let's do something fun together that neither one of us has done before. And we had gone through uh, prior to getting married, we had gone through 10 weeks of premarital counseling through our our church. And one of the things they talked about was the importance of doing new experiences together. And so we picked Toastmasters and it was just a really uh, affordable guided way for us to hone our public speaking skills. I was pregnant (laughs) through most of the, our membership there. And they still call my daughter. Some of the members were still in touch with, they call her the little baby Toastmaster because they, they remember her and she'd come to the meetings. Our country faced such a reckoning in our long struggle with racism in the last 18 months. How does that play into your role as an activist and an advocate? Obviously, seeing what happened with Blackout Tuesday and racism, there's a lot to say there. But I'm really cognizant of not getting pigeonholed as an anti-racist educator, which I've had people try to do that and put that in my bio. And it's like, I'm not an anti-racist educator. I live my life. If you happen to learn something from what I'm doing or sharing or amplifying, fine, but I'm not an educator. Um, I think we all are able to learn from each other. Mm -hmm. And I just love resource sharing. I love amplifying people who are doing specific anti-racist education and training, but that is not my ministry. So I think um, there's something inspiring in, in how I show up online. And I'm just very careful about how I'm described. And so mm-hmm. I, I think it's really easy. Like if someone, you know, sees a black mom and <laughs> talking about her experience, um, as the filter, you know, as a black mom, raising black children in a predominantly white world, oh yes, she's the anti-racist educator. And I'm like, no, I'm just a mom trying to make my way through the world. I can talk about my experience and if you happen to learn um, 
how how to act better <laughs> that's that's up to you sure. you know but i'm not hand holding or educate or you know trying to deliberately educate anyone through my experience wow well we've touched on so many different hats that you wear how do you juggle all of these things how do you make it happen and come together day after day well i have a lot of tactical tools and then i have relational tools so t- more tactically i have a paper planner and then i have my digital calendar and so those two together really help me setting a lot of reminders <laughs> for myself and just being communic- c- communicative <laughs> with my husband you know we've known each other like i said since we were 18 so there's a lot of communication and talking about what we need and where we need support um i call it the juggle struggle and so <laughs> regardless of covid it's a lot of moving pieces at any given moment. And so we're always trying to coordinate our schedules, making sure things align. And of course, things get dropped. Mm-hmm. Um, the ball gets dropped, but we give ourselves a lot of grace, both of us. I have my therapist that I talk to. Um, my coach that I had at the end of Q4 uh, 2020 really helped me get some things in alignment. In fact, my word of 2021 is align. <laughs> And really just trying to constantly be in a state of editing. So when I mentioned being the, you know, the leadership collective for Wellesley Racial Justice Initiative or the uh, Boston Community Outreach Lead for Moms Demand Action, or even right now, I'm coming up at the end of my first term as the vice president of the Wellesley, uh, the Wellesley College Alumni Club of Boston. So when I'm looking at those things, I'm like, wow, that's a lot that, you know, that I'm holding, you know, I, I also sit on the school site council of, of uh, Boston public schools and that term is ending. So I keep a rolling kind of status. Like I said, I'm really forward thinking. Mm-hmm. When are these things ending? Do I want to pick up more? Am I in a, a, a leadership phase of my life? Fellow Wellesley alum, Crystal Fleming, Dr. Crystal Fleming, who wrote how to be less stupid about race. Um, I follow her on Twitter and I interviewed her at reunion. Um, She had a really excellent quote last week about being asked to do leadership things. And she had to step back and say, I'm not in a leadership phase right now. I'm going to invest in myself, Hmm. learn, follow my heart phase right now. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel that so deeply. I went through this like three years of lead, 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 lead. And these two roles right now that are coming to an end, I'm like, do I want to (laughs) re-up? You know, what do I want to do? How am I feeling? And it's also coinciding with my business going like this. Mm -hmm. Um, So my mother, you know, she's a a mother of four. I watched her get her master's degree when she was pregnant with her fourth child. Such an inspiration. She explained to me the seasonality of motherhood and career and not this notion of of work-life balance. She didn't have that language, but it was more so the analogy of having, you know, your stovetop and all the pots and some things on the back burner and moving it forward. And some things, the pot's going to boil over, but wait a minute. So when she explained that to me and and now that I'm living it, I'm like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And having that in my mind really helps me get through a lot of overwhelm. And um, it is a lot. I, and like I said, I have to be careful about stress triggers because of my health. You shared so many practical tools and stress is something that every 
parent, I mean, every person experiences, but parents, especially working parents um, and working moms experience on a daily basis. What are some ways that you de-stress? What are some ways that you help manage that stress for yourself? Yeah, definitely. I've done it so far as (laughs) just tell everybody goodbye (laughs) and walk out the door. (laughs) I've done that before. My kids have seen me do that. I'm like, you know what? I can't handle y'all. Uh, and just like, be like, I'll see you later and just go on foot and walk around the neighborhood. <laughs> um, so there's that to blow off steam, but I think, uh, being committed to moving my body is really important. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, I'm going to do 30 minutes at least three times a week. And, and like I mentioned, working with the coach for the first time in Q4, she, she's not a trainer or anything like that, but it was accountability measure mm. to say, let's do this 360. Are you moving your body? You know, what are you putting into your body? Are you getting rest? Are you doing something for fun? So I really appreciated that approach. And that's really continued to stick with me. I could talk to you forever, um, hearing your story, hearing your words of advice, and just hearing how open you are and how it's all, it's all there. You're not trying to present this perfect image of, the juggle struggle. I'm going to keep that one, like lock that away. Um, that's just a phenomenal phrase, but you're just keeping it so, so raw and real. And that's so appreciated. And it feels like a kindred spirit, like, like, Oh, someone else is, is going through what I think in my head on a, on a daily basis. And to, to know that is just so powerful. Well, thank you. This has been great. Work Like a Mother is produced by Neighbor Schools. Neighbor Schools is a startup in Boston that I co-founded in 2018 to help parents find daycare. As a first-time parent, finding childcare can feel scary and intimidating. At Neighbor Schools, we help you find daycare you'll feel really good about so you can go back to work with the peace of mind that your little one is getting the socialization, support, and stimulation they need to learn and grow. We've helped thousands of moms and dads figure out the daycare search. Check us out at neighborschools.com. And when you get in touch, mention that you discovered us on the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. We'll see you next time.